About four years ago on an Israel Bonds Rabbinic Conference, they organized to bring us to a nondescript office park in northern Tel Aviv in an area called Ramat HaChayal, which if translated means the Hill of the Soldiers. Now, it's called that because... It's called the Hill of the Soldier because apparently in 1948, in the Independence War, it was a temporary staging area where they prepared for their defensive operations. And it struck me being there that morning how much and how little has actually changed. Today, Ramat HaChayal is a central staging area for a different kind of war. It's the battlefield of economics. Because that cluster of nondescript office towers is the very center of what we call the Israeli startup nation. The high-tech, cutting-edge companies that have propelled Israel in the past 10 years to a GDP on par or better than we enjoy in Canada. Now they brought us to an incubator that is supported by a public-private consortium led by Apple, HP, Microsoft, and Google. And after the usual horse and pony show of this and that, of the kinds of places that what they do, the CEO told me the following story I want to share with you. He had worked in Silicon Valley for 20 years, leading two different startups from inception to sale. And then he decided to return home to Israel to establish the incubator. Eight years ago, when Google was deciding where to establish its first research and development center outside of the United States, it had finally come down to two locations, Moscow and Tel Aviv. After some internal deliberation, Google had decided on Moscow. Its strong reputation in math and computer sciences and its proximity to Europe were all positives. Now, Israel also has a great reputation in math and the sciences, perhaps even better than Russia. But that terrorism loomed far and large in everyone's mind. So the executive team booked their flights to Moscow to make the award. They arrive at the Moscow airport, and right then and there, a bomb goes off, killing dozens and injuring many more. The team leader looked at his group and said, and we were concerned about Israel? They left Moscow that morning and literally flew to Tel Aviv to make the award there. Which is to say that fear is a powerful thing. Because fear can both make you make you do something and not make you do something. Written deep inside of your primordial code is wiring to avoid the things that make us afraid. But like a lot of things that operate out of or from some Darwinian evolutionary survival switch, is this warning. What works to keep you alive may very well end up ruining your life. Now, 50,000 years ago, when our ancestors were picking berries on the African savanna or hunting a woolly mammoth by a fjord, avoiding the things that made us afraid were essential to survival. Ignore the dangers of a high cliff or a deep river or a threatening animal, and you could find yourself quickly taking your last breath. Fear evolved to teach us to stay away from real dangers, of the things that if you ignored them, it would end up putting a swift and brutal end to your life. 
but like a lot of instinctual behaviors, they don't come with the switch to turn them off or on at the right time. So if you feel, if you feel afraid on the first day of school, do you stay home? If you're afraid to fall, do you not learn how to ride a bike? If you're afraid to might, you might drown, do you not learn how to swim? If you're afraid you may get a broken heart, do you never ask anyone out? So it's right to ask where's the point between this and that. Of discerning between what to avoid and what you need to face in life. Because life is full of danger. Each time you step out your front door, there are no assurances that the day will end with what you hope for. After all, just outside the front door of your home lurk cars, construction equipment, temptations, strangers, and violence. You, a friend, a family member, might find themselves in a moment that will completely and unexpectedly change your life forever. A few weeks ago, I received a phone call from a congregant. Their son played on a hockey team whose goaltender, a 15-year-old boy, had just been murdered along with his mother and sister just a few hours ago by the mother's boyfriend. You probably saw it on the news. The team, they told me, was at the rink and they didn't know what to say or do. So I left and headed to the rink. Just yesterday, the coach told me, but as I walked in, the boy had been with them at practice, and everything seemed fine on the outside, despite what we now were hearing, that the boyfriend had a history of being unstable and explosive with the mother and with others. And I walked into the locker room, and the boys were sitting in the room, quiet and stunned, and one locker was open and empty. I first told the players that none of this has anything to do with God, because God doesn't make earthquakes, floods, or plagues. That's simply the nature of the world. And God doesn't make people violent. It's in the choices those people make, which is to say that their teammate had done nothing in his life to deserve the fate that he had been given. I then asked the players what they remembered most about him. And to a person, they all said that he was always smiling. Good game or bad game or whatever, no matter. He was always smiling. I told him to think about the kind of life he must have lived. That what he woke up to and when he went home to every day of his life. We now know what it was, and yet every time he stepped out of the car and into the rink, he smiled. And that's what you need to remember, I told them. That's what you need to remember about him. You need to remember how he smiled. This week has been a gut-wrenching and painful one. To many, it was shocking. Yet to some of us, it was horribly familiar. In some ways, in the saddest ways, Toronto Monday reminded me of Israel 15 years ago. Israel is a country where the fear of something like that happening is always close to the surface. And yet, for anyone who has visited or lived there, nearly every one of you would say that there are few places as vibrant and social as Israel. On any given night, the restaurants and cafes and bars and parks are filled with people living life, 
Israel is a place that despite the danger, defies fear. Which leads us into our question this morning. One that we will answer in the coming moments with prayer and song and more thought from me. The question is this. How do you find the courage to smile in a world that can change from beautiful to horrible in a moment? How do you find that courage? We'll find out. Everyone, please rise. You off. Wait. Careful, sweetheart. So, so I left you off with a question that I probably should answer. And the question was, given all the events of the past week, how do you figure out how to smile in a world that in any moment can turn from beautiful to horrible? And I would suggest to you that there's two things that operate inside of the world. We live in a world of the things that happen, and we also live in the world of the things that we do. The things that happen are the things that we know happen. That there are earthquakes and there are floods and there are tar- horrible tragedies and there are plagues and we have no control over them whatsoever. But in the world of what we do, well, we have a great deal of control over that, about how we face life. So we know that there are no promises actually to life except for one promise. And that one promise, I want to share a story with you. It comes by way of the life of a rabbi named Yukutiel Halberstam, who was known as the Klausenberger Rebbe. He came from a great rabbinic dynasty. And during the Second World War, he lost his entire family. He lost his wife, his nine children, his mother, his father, his brothers and his sisters, 150 family members in all. The story goes that he saw his wife and his two daughters killed before his eyes. One day while he was in Brooklyn in his synagogue with his congregation, the Torah reading for that morning was a story of all the curses that would befall the Jewish people if they didn't follow God's will. And the tradition is, is that we read this part of the Torah portion in a muted voice. We don't say it out loud. As if we're afraid that it might come true. But on that Shabbat, as the Torah reading began, and the Torah reader following tradition lowered his voice, Rabbi Halberstam banged on the table and he said, say it louder. And everyone kind of ignored him because they thought that maybe he was whatever. And then he said it again. He said, say it louder. He said, why should we say it slowly or softly? It isn't like it won't happen. It already has. The story goes that that week after that Shabbat, he packed his bags up and he moved to Israel. While he was in Israel for the last 30 years of his life, Rabbi Halberstam established a city called Kiryat Sanz. He established a hospital called Laniado that has over 800 beds. And 15 years ago when he died, this was written in his obituary. Rabbi Halberstam left behind the second wife, seven children, 83 grandchildren, and 242 great-grandchildren. In other words, Rabbi Halberstam had the courage to begin again. You can live safely. You can lock your doors, triple lock them. You can keep your kids and wrap them in bubble. You can find friends, you know, and you track them on your iPhone all day long. You can tell them only to take Uber and not go into TTC. 
You can tell them not to walk on sidewalks. You can do that yourself too. But you'll never actually live your life. In order to live life, you need hope and faith. Hope and faith, not that bad things won't happen in life, they will. But hope and faith that you'll have the courage to live life despite what might happen. Or in the words of Anne Frank, who wrote these words when she was living in the attic, and she looked through the small window and saw the Gestapo taking away her best friend and her family to their deaths. Anne Frank wrote these words. I won't think of all the horror, but only of the beauty that remains. That's the choice we have. I pray you will.